Father, thanks for your commitment to bless us, and uh, I pray that uh, we're feeling that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Ken and Jocelyn, you guys are celebrating your second anniversary, right? Two weeks? Is it two weeks? It is one week. Thanks. Okay. One week. I saw in the paper this morning, Midway, uh, family, it, it was a wedding picture, and they were celebrating their first anniversary. So they put a picture in the paper for their first anniversary. Also, on the same page, it's funny, a couple we know from TBC was celebrating their 60th anniversary. And yesterday, our home was chock full of Tinsley's uh, because Kathy's parents celebrated their 60th anniversary yesterday. So we've got the front end and the tail end on these great love stories. And uh, we're talking about love stories this morning, guys. This is especially for you because I knew you'd want to hear it, Brad. Romance, love stories. We are actually, but it's with a twist. You know... uh, Love stories, my introduction here is to give you some facts about love stories. Uh, love stories are the stuff of life. They, are the, they have this great appeal because whether it's a movie or a book, you know, whatever venue you hear or see one of these in, they really incorporate the stuff of life in the sense of great desire, great passion. There's almost always some sense in which it looks like the guy won't get the girl or the girl will lose the guy, you know, one... Some kind of uh, intervention is going to be needed. And, and so y- your hopes are kind of hung in these stories because they incorporate our desire to be known and loved. They trade on these themes that are common to all of us. Love stories do. The English version of this, I was kind of surprised, doesn't go back any further than about 1813. Pride and Prejudice is considered the first of the modern style love stories And then Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre by the Brontes would be the next in that series. It's only that recent, so a couple hundred years old or so. But check this out. According to Answers.com, I I looked this up online, their their sales statistics were for 2002, so they're not that old. But romance novels sold $1.6 billion in North America in 2002. And romance novels, love stories, comprise 35% of all popular fiction. It's far and away the biggest category of book sales. It's romance novels, it's love stories. And then if you go beyond the books to the movies, do you know the greatest grossing film of all time? is 1997's Titanic. And, it, you know, it's a, it's a love story. The guy, they kind of don't get each other in the end, sort of, I guess. I've never seen it, but that's what I've read. Uh, what does that say about me? I haven't seen it. But anyway, it's the biggest grossing film of all time. It also uh, shares with Ben-Hur, with the likes of Ben-Hur, and The Return of the King, 11 Academy Awards. It shares the title with those two of the most Academy Awards for a single film, Titanic. It's another version of a love story. Now, Brad, for guys like you and me, though, that like the war, the action, you know, the He-Man shows... Uh, It it occurred to me when I thought of this that uh, many, if not most, of the action or the dramas also involve the guy getting the girl. You know, he doesn't just destroy the enemy and save the world, but he gets the girl in the end, too. So that even most action films incorporate some version of a love story. 
Well, with that as an introduction, we're going to look at a story this morning, a love story that's older than Pride and Prejudice, and it's from a book that certainly sold more copies than the greatest romance novels, and this love story is called Hosea. It's God's love story out of the Old Testament. You can turn there because we will pretty much be parked in Hosea this morning. And this actually, this is the first of 12 planned teachings that I'm calling Majoring in the Minors. Majoring in the Minors. You know, as a rule of thumb, you generally tell yourself or tell others, major in the majors. That is, in life, don't, don't micromanage, don't focus on the little things, but major, give your focus to the major things of life. And we're not really upending that, though it sounds like it, but what we're going to do is take a week each to look at each of the 12 Minor Prophets, the last books in the Old Testament, in our English Old Testament anyway. They're called minor because they're shorter. You know, if you read Isaiah, 66 chapters, but you read Obadiah, it's one page, it's one chapter. Hosea is the longest of these at 14 chapters. It's quite a bit longer than most of the other Minor Prophets. So minor refers to size, but not message or value. So we're going to major... In the Minors, I think you'll be glad we did in the end. If, if you haven't read the Minor Prophets, there's probably, maybe outside of, of portions of Leviticus or maybe even Deuteronomy, there's probably no other portion of the Bible that's less read than the Minor Prophets. So we're going to look at them through the next few months. Hosea, this book is uh, like a few of the other uh, prophets. If you think of Isaiah or Ezekiel, they had times in their ministries where their life represented what was going on for God and the nation. And Hosea, this book is all about that. It's what you could call a pageant or it's an allegory in which the lives of Hosea and his wife Gomer are meant to be living illustrations of God's relationship with Israel. So God has Hosea intentionally marry a certain kind of woman. They have children. This whole story, it's a setup so that God gives Israel this living, walking, breathing illustration of his love for his people. That's the story of Hosea. This is, though, uh, this isn't your typical romance novel because it's, it's ugly and it's nitty-gritty. There's no rose-colored glasses on in this. It's not a Titanic story at all. It's painful because although Hosea loves his wife Gomer, she's unfaithful to him and not just a little. It's not a little mistake. It's time after time after time. You'll see in a little bit her life just spirals downward in her unfaithfulness towards her husband. And yet in the end, it's about her redemption through her husband, Hosea. Hosea, by the way, depending on, if you read this in Hebrew, it would look more like Hosea, and that's tied to its aversion of Yeshua, or the Hebrew word Joshua, which means Savior. So Hosea's name actually means Savior, the same as Jesus' name does too. This is interesting, too. Hosea lives and speaks in the 700, 700 B.C., so around 750 to 720 or so. And if you know your history of Israel, this is a really prosperous time. Isaiah's prophesying at the same time. Amos prophesies at the same time. This is kind of an exception to the rule in Israel's history because they're not being invaded by anybody. And even though the nations divided Judah in the south and Israel in the north, Israel in the north, they're much bigger than Judah in the south. 
They own property up into what would be modern-day Syria. They control trade routes. They are a, a wealthy, wealthy nation. In fact, their empire is as big as it was during Solomon's reign in the north. So it's a time of great material prosperity, but as is often the case, the great material prosperity leads to moral and spiritual decline. That's the problem, unfortunately. And that's the milieu in which the Hosea speaks. It's interesting that in this 14-chapter-long book, we only see Hosea and Gomer for three chapters, the first three. But they're important because they're the backdrop behind which we see everything else. It's their story, it's their love story, that sets the backdrop for all the rest of the chapter. Let me start in Hosea 1, and as we'll do each week, it's hard to cover a book in a Sunday. We're going to skip through. This is the longest, so it's the most difficult, and that we'll see the least amount of it this morning. But we'll skip through some of these passages to get a picture of what's going on. In Hosea 1, starting at verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry. Have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. Just stop there for a minute. Uh, it's not a rosy start to their marriage, is it? Go take a wife of harlotry. Have children of harlotry. Depending on your version, yours might say adulterous or adultery or unfaithful, but the Hebrew word wanton lust, prostitution, adultery, if it's spiritual, it's immorality typically related to idolatry or serving other gods. It's a strong word. You're going to take a wife who's going to be unfaithful, and not just a little, but a lot. And the reason is because I'm demonstrating Israel's unfaithfulness to me. So go take a wife who will prove to be unfaithful. And it tells us he took Gomer. Finishing at verse 3, she conceived and bore him a son. So far, so good. The Lord said to him, name him Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. We're not going to go a lot into the history that's represented here, but God is saying here, Jehu was a commander who killed King Ahab and Jezebel, ended all their, their kingdom, and then it's his descendants who are ruling Israel unfaithfully now that God is going to put an end to. Jezreel was the place in which Jehu's reign started. He says, On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo, Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. Lo means not, and Ruhamah means compassion there. Verse 7, But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Lo means not again, and Ami means people. So, short term, Hosea takes a wife, takes Gomer, they get married, they probably had a nice celebration, they get pregnant and have a son. And for a Jewish life, this looks like a great beginning. It just doesn't last very long. And even here in these opening verses, 
it's clear the text tells us that Jezreel is Hosea's son. It doesn't specifically say that the next two are. And in fact, lo, Ami, you're not my people. You'll see in chapter 2, we'll, we'll skim here in just a moment, in which it's clear that uh, Israel has illegitimate children, so to speak, and we probably see that through Hosea and Gomer here, that the children, the second two children she had were probably not Hosea's. God uses Hosea and then he uses the children and their names to demonstrate and to tell Israel, this is what's going on, this is where you're at, this is where you're going. In chapter 2, we'll start at verse 2, God is speaking to the nation Israel, but remember again, this is through the lens of Hosea and Gomer's marriage. So we understand that most of what's written here is not just true of Israel, but it's literally true of Hosea and Gomer. And then that'll lead us in when we get to chapter 3. It won't be such an abrupt jump. We otherwise wouldn't know what's going on in chapter 3 or what happened. In verse 2, chapter 2, Let her put away her harlotry, that is, God to Israel, from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Also, I will have no compassion on her children. Why? Well, they're children of harlotry. Their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. They're not my children, God says, spiritually. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and water, wool, flax, oil, and drink. She will pursue her lovers, but she won't overtake them. She'll seek them, but won't find them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me. God's description of Israel spiritually, we understand, is physically or literally true of Gomer and Hosea. That is, Gomer has left her husband and she has chased after her lovers and she gets the trinkets from her lovers, flax and oil, bread and water. But there's a problem. You know, oftentimes when you make a choice that short-term looks like you're gaining something, the long-term effect is actually... a a loss. Well, we'll see that by chapter 3, literally with Gomer, <clears throat> she starts out, she's apparently attractive and other men want to be with her and they give her trinkets, but in the end, she is poor, she's impoverished, and she's not desirable anymore, and no one wants her anymore. And this is the spiral she's on. God speaking spiritually to Israel, but Gomer living this out, literally leaving, forsaking her husband, Hosea. And again, that's why God says, you've had illegitimate spiritual children that are not mine. And this apparently was literally true of Gomer towards Hosea. So they get married. They have one child, at least between the two of them. It looks like the next two children are not Hosea's. They're illegitimate children from her paramours, her lovers. She's led this life where she's pursued other men. She's left her husband. She's left her children. And short term, at least, it was something that appeared to be paying off. Long term, it does not. So that when we get to chapter 3, the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who's loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Raisin cakes part of the worship of Baal. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver 
and a homer and a half of barley. And I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man or another man. So I will also be toward you. Now, you need to have a pretty graphic view of this in your mind's eye. Uh, What this really means, Hosea goes to the public market where the slaves are stripped and sold naked up on the stand. So Hosea's coming, God tells him, go love that woman. Where is she? Well, she's in the public market with the other people who are being sold as slaves. And she doesn't have a stitch of clothing on. Her shame is apparent to all. And, you know, by the way, depending on what period you're looking at in biblical history, 20 to 30 shekels was kind of a standard purchase price for a slave, and and she doesn't bring that. She brings 15 and a little wheat thrown in on the side. But you've got to have this picture in your mind. Here I've loved my wife. I've been faithful to my wife. My wife has been repeatedly unfaithful to me. And when it's time for her to come home, I've got to go to the public market, and then I have to bid against competitors so that I can bring my wife back home. It is the low point, certainly, of Gomer's wife. And, you know, God told Hosea to go and do this. If he was left to himself, maybe he wouldn't have. Maybe he would have said, you know, that's what she wanted. That's what she's got. But Hosea follows God's command. He goes down to the public market. You can imagine for him, too, I assume she feels a little shame at this point, but you can imagine him as the husband going in. It'd be a little awkward, wouldn't it? A little embarrassing. You're trying to bring your wife home, but you've got to outbid other men to even be able to claim her. Because while she was provided for by her lovers initially, she's gone into debt. That's why she's here. So she has debts she can't pay, maybe from the last guy she's been with. And so she's being sold just to pay off her debts. So shameful for her, the bottom of the barrel. And for Hosea, he can't just go and say, Honey, wouldn't you like to come home? He has to bid against others to redeem her. Now at this point, you might say to yourself, Where's the love story? Where's the love? I'm not seeing it. I'm not feeling it. And there's not much to see or feel. But remember this. Hosea, in the end, this isn't about Gomer so much as it's about Hosea. And it's not so much about Israel. It's about God, that is the love story. Hosea does go to the marketplace. And he does at his cost buy her back. And he brings her out of her poverty and he dresses her and he brings her back into his home and makes her his wife again. The most powerful or memorable element of this story is not Gomer's loveliness. It's not that she had social standing. It's not that she was somehow particularly attractive in and of herself. The most important element of the story is that in spite of what Gomer was, in spite of unfaithfulness and shame, betrayal and insult, her husband, Hosea, her savior, bought her back out of slavery and humiliation and brought her home. That's the love story. It's not mutual faithfulness over 60 years together. And it's not that there's, there's this lovely, attractive couple that is committed to each other in love. The love story is Hosea loved an unfaithful wife because God loved an unfaithful people and redeemed them at his expense. God fleshes out 
the story, the real love story, that is using Hosea and Gomer as the backdrop, he fleshes out the rest of the story, the relationship between he and Israel in the rest of the chapters. I'm going to skip through. You can follow this if you want. I'll tell you where I'm reading from. Listen to the words he uses about Israel's unfaithfulness in Hosea 4, verse 1. God says, The Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. And just by way of digression here, knowledge is a key term in this book of Hosea. And it's for this purpose. You remember when the opening chapters of Genesis, when it says... uh, It doesn't say Adam slept with his wife. It doesn't say Adam and Eve had sex and got pregnant. What does it say? It says Adam knew his wife. And you remember in the biblical concept, when you read knowledge of God, they didn't know God. It's the sense of intimate, personal relationship. So God's speaking to the people he's in covenant with. You remember on Sinai, they're in a marriage-type covenant. God's pledged to them, they're pledged to God. And God says, in this land of Israel that is my spouse, as it were, they don't even know me. There's no intimacy, there's no personal relationship left. Instead, what is there? They're swearing, deception, murder, stealing, adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. And by the way, as many other judgment passages When I read this, this sounds like my newspaper in Topeka, Kansas, or in the United States today. Verse 11, Harlotry, wine, new wine, take away understanding. My people consult wooden idols, and diviners' wands informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. They've played the harlot, departing from their God. Verse 13, your daughters play the harlot, and your brides commit adultery. And and by the way... um, Idolatry in the Old Testament, we, we don't think in these terms, but a close approximation would probably be for us clubs today. That is, in the ancient world, idolatry didn't just mean bowing down to another idol, which it did, and, and a person was saying, you're my God, to a statue or a piece of wood. But besides that, if you say, why would people bother bowing down to a statue or a piece of wood? What's you know, what do they get? Well, this is typically what they got. Sexual immorality was the foundation of all this idolatry. So earlier when it talked about going to Baal, immorality was part of Baal worship of all, almost all the worship of idol gods that you'll read about in the scriptures. Immorality was just part of the deal. So when it says your daughters play the harlot and brides commit adultery, this is likely all tied in with the Baal worship. It wasn't I worship idols over here and I commit immorality over here. They were one and the same thing. In Hosea 8, verse 4, with their silver and gold, they've made their idols for themselves. Hosea 13, 6, they had their pasture like sheep. They became satisfied. Being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. That is, in their abundance, in their material prosperity, they said, life's good, I can do as I please, and they forgot God in the doing. Like Gomer, Israel was unfaithful to Yahweh and the covenant that she was in, that Israel was in with God. And like an unfaithful wife, Israel sought pleasure under the covering of other gods. And idol worship was just a quick and easy excuse for immorality. You know that because God loves his people, and again the context here is all God with Israel, his covenant people in the Old 
under the old covenant, he never just lets his people go. He always pursues them with loving discipline. He hopes to get their attention through pain. And so he talks about that here in Hosea 4, verse 6. He says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I will reject you. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. Uh, Just like Gomer leaving Hosea, not being with the benefit of his provision, God says to Israel, you're not going to benefit from my presence, and your children aren't. Chapter 5, verse 14, I will be like a lion to Ephraim. And like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away, and there will be none to deliver. I will go away, return to my place, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. God says, instead of my blessing, I'll be like a lion that tears you and wounds you. And in your pain, you'll return to me. Hosea 8, verse 7, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It yields no grain. I'm going to punish you with poor crops. Even if it should yield, strangers would swallow it up. I'm going to take away your material prosperity. Hosea 10.13, You've plowed wickedness. You've reaped injustice. You've eaten the fruit of lies because you've trusted in your way, in your numerous Warriors, you thought that in your material prosperity, in your army, in your cities, etc., you could defend yourself, life would be good, but you left me, and I'm going to turn that upside down. You're going to have want, not plenty. You're going to be invaded. And by the way, you remember Israel in 722, right after Hosea is done with his prophecy, Israel, the northern kingdom, is taken captive, never to be restored. The northern tribes are taken to Assyria, and they're scattered throughout the east, That part of the country is never restored. The restoration of Israel is the Judah section that's taken to Babylon and then returns later. Like Gomer reaping the fruits of her own choices, going further and further away from God, God says to Israel, you're going to bear the penalties of your own choices. That's going to be part of the discipline or the chastening that will provoke you to turn around and seek me. Just as Hosea redeems Gomer, God's ultimate end, though, for Israel is restoration and blessing. In Hosea 10, verse 12, God says, Sow or plant with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. God says the day is going to come in which my blessings will be like rain on you again. Hosea 11, verse 8 This is God's heart, just like this would be Hosea's heart towards his wife. God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. This is strong language. In the West, we talk about the heart. You know, my heart goes out. In the Middle East, though, the term is actually my bowels. And, you know... um, If you feel something deeply or if you're fearful, you'll feel like your stomach even queasy or uncomfortable or if you're really angry in the sense you feel in the center of your being. That's the thought here. Uh, My heart, my bowels are turned over within me. God says, this is strong emotion. All my compassions are kindled. He wants to be compassionate to Israel as people. 
I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. God says, my compassions are stirred. I want to have mercy on my people, and I will. Hosea 14, I will heal their apostasy or their adultery. I will love them freely. My anger has been turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout. His beauty will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again rise, or excuse me, will again raise grain. They will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. God says in the end it's going to be blessing. And it won't be wrath and it won't be chastening. But my goodness to you will be like the rain coming down. Or it will be like dew on the grass in the morning. God says I'm determined to bless you in the end. Hosea and Gomer, Yahweh and Israel. Gomer displaying the same unfaithfulness and waywardness of Israel and Hosea displaying the loyal or redeeming love of God. This really is a love story. It doesn't have the frills and the lace we tend to think of, but it does have forgiveness and redemption. This, in my opinion, when you read a story like Hosea, it's easy to read it sort of like the story of the uh, woman caught in adultery in John 8. You know, when she stands before the crowd, there's absolutely no thought that she's not guilty. She can't say, you got it wrong. And everyone knows she's really guilty. No question whatsoever, caught in the act. And when we read Hosea about Gomer, it's the same thing. And it is really, really easy to say, wow, I'm glad I'm Hosea and not Gomer. But, you know, the truth is, Uh, Israel was Gomer, and when you and I read this today, you and I aren't Hosea. We're Gomer too. We're Gomer too. When you read this story, you need to identify with the adulteress, with the unfaithful one, not with the Savior. We're the woman in John 8. We're Gomer in Hosea. All of us have been slaves to sin and to lusts and to bitterness and anger and hatred, and the list goes on and on. All of us sin, and no doubt today continue in one sin or another, or ten, or thirty. That's us. We're Gomer. We're not Hosea. When we read this, don't pick up your stones with the guys in John 8, and don't think you're Hosea. You and I are Gomer. That's the position we stand in. And as far as our merit, as far as our merit, we are Gomer in the marketplace. We are the slave on the auction block, naked, ashamed, nothing to bring to this equation. We have a debt that we can't pay. We're the naked person reaping the result of our choices. That's us. That's the position we need to see when we read this. With that thought in mind, do this later today sometime. Uh, Take five or ten minutes where you just get alone with God and just do one of those short list things that it's good for us to do regularly, which is just to inventory the ways in which we're Gomer today, the ways in which we're not doing what we should, or we're doing the things we know we shouldn't. And the truth is... uh, 
I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care what your life looks like on the outside. Uh, you and I inside, left to ourselves, we are corrupt rags. A guy named uh, John Nelson Darby was a great spiritual giant, not thought by all, but certainly, in my opinion, was a great spiritual giant from 150 years ago. He said the closer he got to Christ, the more vile he saw himself. Just in the sense that the more he saw of God's goodness in his life, the more he saw of God's character, the clearer his own faults and sins became. You know, if you take a mud bath with other people in a mud bath, and one mud bather says to the other, how do I look? And he says, well, you look fine. But then if you go and you shower off, and the clean person comes out and looks at the dirty person, suddenly there's a change of perception. Well, we're all in the mud bath. And the closer we get to God, the more we see that apart from Christ, we're Gomer, naked and ashamed, on the public auction block. That's us. We have nothing to bring to this equation with God except our sin. And so sometime today, just get quiet with the Lord and just go over with Him the ways in your life in which you're blowing it. Just confess those. He tells us we've got forgiveness, which we'll mention here in just a minute. Confess those and just make a a clean breast of things. Lord, this is the way I'm blowing it and I'm returning to you again. In Hosea 6 verse 1, This is one of the highlights of the book to me. And this is Israel speaking. This is a good thing. Come, let us return to the Lord. He is torn. He's been the lion. He's torn us. But he will heal us. He has wounded us for our good. But he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Not die. He's not going to kill us. He didn't wound us to kill us but to bring us back that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. You remember in John 17, 3, what Jesus says is life? This is life that they may know you, the only true God. They say, let us press on to know the Lord. This is life. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. That's God's commitment to bless, to bring life. So Israel says, gosh, let's respond. Let's press on to know him. Let's press on to have a vital, spiritual, face-to-face, personal relationship with our God. You know, it's only based on Christ's redemption, on what Jesus did for us, that we can say we should press on to know the Lord. As surely as Hosea redeemed Gomer, naked and ashamed in the public square, Christ has redeemed us. And think of it this way too. In Gomer's case, she's naked and ashamed on the public block. And there's a sense in which in this story, Hosea takes Gomer's place. And if you think of Christ on the cross, think of it in this term, out of Hosea. Christ hanging naked on the cross in the public arena, bearing the nakedness and shame that wasn't his own. When Hosea redeems Gomer, he pays a debt to redeem his wife, debts he didn't incur and debts she couldn't pay. And when Jesus comes in as our Hosea, our Savior, he takes our place, as it were, 
on the auction block. He's the one who's naked, bears the sin and shame not his own, so that he can save you and I. Gomer couldn't save herself. She has a debt she can't pay. You and I cannot save ourselves. We have a debt we cannot pay. So, when you hear words like, let us press on to know the Lord, don't think that somehow you're earning God's favor when you tell yourself, press on to know the Lord. This is a good thing. Press on to know Him, press on to honor Him, press on to say thank you, but let it be that context. Christ has paid the debt we couldn't pay, so that we can't do anything about that. He paid it, it's paid. What we can do is this. We can press on to know Him and to honor Him, and we can say thank you to Him for what He's done on our behalf. So let that be your motivation when you think of, I'm going to press on to know the Lord. You're not earning your salvation. You're not paying any debt back. You couldn't pay it first and you can't pay it now. But you can do this. You can thank Him. You and I can thank Him for what He's done for us. And we can encourage ourselves and each other to continue to press on and know Him. But you need to understand it's in the context that we're not paying anything back. We're not paying any debt off. We're simply saying thank you for what Christ did for us. The last thing is this. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. In the end, this is a story about Hosea's love, and it's a story about God's love. And it's a story about Hosea redeeming a wayward wife, and it's about God redeeming a wayward people. Gomer's redemption had nothing to do with Gomer. Not a thing. Israel's redemption in the end has not a thing to do with Israel. It has to do with God. And to me, there is absolute liberation in realizing that my part in this redemption love story is I bring all the sin and all the shame and God brings all the success. He brings the redemption. He brings the happy ending. I don't. And Christians... Many, if not most Christians, live lives in a kind of desperation in which they keep thinking, I'm going to try and live better. I'm going to try and do better. I'm going to try and measure up. Many Christians, because they are caught in cycles of sin, they have a sense of desperation in which they start thinking they're not even saved anymore. Well, see, the problem with that is you can't save yourself in the first place and you can't keep yourself in the second place. Our redemption is entirely God's doing. It's our Hosea's. It's our Savior's doing. The beauty of this for me is this. No matter what I do, no matter how badly I blow it, and this is not license to sin, I just realize God wants me back. His compassions are stirred towards you and I. That's His heart. And He will chasten us. And you've probably felt the claws of the lion before when you knew your life was out of line and you're going the wrong direction and you know God's saying, how about turning around? It's it's God's doing. From beginning to end, your redemption and salvation and mine, it's God's doing. You can rest in that. Then you can say to yourself, I want to press on to know the Lord. I want to honor God and say thank you to Him because of what He's done for me. Not because I can measure up to some standard of righteousness. I can't. 
Not because I can pay back a debt, because I can't. It's all been paid by Christ on the cross. He took the shame and the sin and the burden that was ours. Hosea, as it were, took Gomer's place and redeemed her, and that's what God's done for us. So don't think. I just, For me, this is liberating because what it leaves me free to do every day is say thank you. It leaves me free every day to say, God, thank you that you've saved me. And thank you that no matter how badly I blow it, how close I look to Christ in this time on the earth or not, thank you that redemption is your doing. You're the Savior. I bring the sin and you bring the salvation. And you're going to rain on me and I'm going to get your compassion and your mercy, not because I deserve it, but because you're loving. Hosea is a story. It's a love story. No rose glasses. It's a love story because God says, I love you and I'm going to have you. And I'm going to pay the debt and I'm going to buy you back and I'm going to keep you. And when chapter 3 ended, he says, you're coming back to my house and you're not going to belong to any other man anymore, just to me. And that's what God says to us. And you know what? He's going to have us because he can do that because he's creator, sustainer, and redeemer. Let me close with these words out of chapter 2. This speaks, I believe, literally. These are words that Israel will say in the future yet as a nation, but spiritually they can certainly apply to us, especially as members of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. In Hosea 2, starting at verse 19, God says of Israel's future, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. I'm going to do it, and then you'll know me. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. Lo, Ruhama. And I will say to those who were not my people, Lo, Ami, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Father, I stand amazed at the compassion and kindness you've displayed for us in Christ. Lord Jesus, there's no way that we can ever earn or pay back or deserve the redemption you provided at your cost. We can say thank you. And Lord, we can encourage ourselves and each other to press on to know you. Lord, I pray that we would be amazed and in awe and motivated and challenged by a book like Hosea that reminds us that you've loved us with an everlasting love. And that, Lord, you see right through us. You know every fault and every sin in our life right now. You know the future perfectly. You know every sin we'll commit in the future, and yet you've still loved us, and your compassions are stirred towards us, and you're determined to have us. And, Lord, in the end, we will be your faithful bride because of your doing. And, Father, reflecting on your goodness and the the absoluteness of your salvation and redemption of us, I pray that it would be out of that truth that we would be personally motivated personally encouraged and strengthened by your spirit to say with Israel, let us press on to know you. Lord, help every day of our lives be a thank you for the redemption and the loving kindness and the compassion we have from you now and the eternal bright future we have with you yet to come.
Lord, we say with John, come Lord Jesus. Amen.